0: Every National Native American Heritage Month, the Center for Native American Youth releases their State of Native Youth Report. This year's report came out on November 20th and is centered around how and why Native youth count. From the Aspen Institute, I'm Amina Akhtar. This is Aspen Insight. In 2020, the largest count of people in America will take place through the Census Bureau. So, why is this important? Census numbers predict federal spending dollars for things like childcare centers, summer lunch programs, and health services. My guest today is Eric Stegman of the Carry the Kettle Nation. He is the executive director of the Center for Native American Youth, also known as CNAY. In addition to the annual report they release every year, CNAY leads the Champions for Change program and the general National Native Youth Network, which are platforms to connect, engage, and provide opportunities. Above all, CNAY works hard to ensure Native American youth have a seat at the table on a range of important issues, from language revitalization, to mitigating climate change, to ensuring the 2020 census numbers are accurate. It's clear Native American youth are leading the way to real change in their communities. Take a listen to our conversation. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Sure, happy to be here.
0: So November is National Native American Heritage Month. Why is it important to celebrate this?
1: I think a number of reasons. One of the biggest issues that Native people across the country deal with every day is really uh, invisibility with the general public and it really affects everything that we do if you talk to a lot of folks and you know everyday people who may or may not know someone who's native a lot of times they don't think we exist anymore what they do think they know about us tend to be really harmful stereotypes and Uh, negative narratives that really focus on deficits and not strengths and so anything that we can do to really celebrate our cultural heritage and particularly what contemporary Native people are doing and who they are today and our uh, tremendous diversity across the country really matters in everything that we do.
0: Native youth have been playing a critical role in addressing and mitigating climate change. What sorts of challenges are communities facing across the country with climate change and how are Native youth making sure their voices are being heard?
1: Oh, boy, there's so many ways that Native youth are seeing this in every region of the country and I think are really some of the most vocal advocates on this issue and have been for a very long time but haven't necessarily been listened to by a lot of the right stakeholders. When it comes to the impacts, you know, we work with a a wide network of of youth across the country where this is their top priority. Uh, We work with a number of youth up in Alaska who are seeing all sorts of coastal erosion issues. All kinds of challenges to their uh, subsistence hunting, and and other cultural activities. Um, you're obviously seeing in the in the Great Plains and and other areas just flooding like we've never seen before, which is impacting the ability to um, to grow food and all sorts of issues. So I mean the lists go on, but I think what Native youth really bring to the table differently than anyone else, and why they're really often at the forefront of these movements, like Standing Rock and others is a is an ancestral knowledge about the land and what's interesting i find is that we go to a lot of these climate change conferences and scientific conferences and quite honestly most of the research is simply proving what we've known for a long time and so a lot of youth have been learning from their elders about how the land works how our animals are, are operating within that land, and they they bring that knowledge to uh, a lot of these climate change conferences and other things. Um, just next month, there's actually a big um, delegation of indigenous youth going to the, the big climate change conference in Madrid that was originally supposed to be held in Santiago, um, and they've been a really strong force at any of those international conferences. I don't think they've been listened to the way that they need to be, um, especially when it comes to some of the solutions that need to be put in place. But it's important that we create a bigger and bigger space for Native youth because they are the stewards of that land. That's part of their culture, and they're committed to this issue. And I think we really need to make sure they've got a seat at the table as we deal with some pretty existential crises here in the world.
0: Deb Holland wrote the foreword for this book. And it's still baffling to me that one of the first Native American women was elected to Congress in the year 2018. Where do you see this representation in Congress taking the community as a whole?
1: Oh, wow, it's been tremendous. Um, so the um, two Native women were elected in the same year, Sharice Davids from Kansas and Deb Holland from New Mexico. And it's just been um inspiring to say the very least. We uh, Every year we bring five Native youth leaders here to Washington, D.C. at the Aspen Institute as part of our Champions for Change program to honor them for the positive initiative they're undertaking in their communities and they really become our core ambassadors through the year. And we were up on Capitol Hill visiting with their elected officials, and of course the first place they wanted to go was these two women's offices. And we hold that during the same time as a big tribal leaders meeting here with the National Congress of American Indians, so there's a lot of Indians in town. And um, there was this just sacred energy around the door of that office and both of those offices up on the hill. There were elders there. Uh, people were praying and our young people see that. I think that it's easy to just say, you know, they can see themselves in these people, but it's much more important to acknowledge and respect that these are two women who are representing the first people of this country who really have political power and that power came to Capitol Hill through some serious grassroots organizing, and a lot of Native people and their allies who brought them there. So they've really become, you know, it's probably a lot of extra responsibility for them, I can't imagine it, but they really have become these important um, beacons of inspiration and hope, I think, for Native young people all over the country, everywhere you talk about them. They're really rock stars. And it excites me because I, I, you know, we're working with so many young people all over the country. They're all talking about who's going to run now, right? And that's, I think, what's really exciting is, you know, how many more Native people can we get into Congress because of uh, the, you know, tremendous milestone that we've finally seen with these two women. So we're just really excited and really honored that she authored our foreword this year.
0: 2020 is a big year for Native communities because of the census count. Why is the census count important in order to ensure fair representation?
1: It's so critical, and that's one of the reasons that we made that the focus of our report this year, so our theme is Native Youth Count. And <clears throat> we speak in the report about the census in a number of different ways because it's one of the most under-appreciated and misunderstood parts of federal policy that determines so much for tribes. The bottom line for us is that we have a distinct legal and political relationship with the federal government. Hundreds of tribal nations have a treaty uh, relationship with the U.S. government, and that means that they are duty-bound to protect our lands and provide for our health, welfare, education, and a number of other services. All of that is determined by the census. So when we're undercounted, it means a direct impact on federal dollars that are coming into our communities. And these aren't just, you know, federal dollars that are, you know, determined because of what Congress wants for a political moment here or there. These are legally responsible dollars because of our ancestors and their treaties. So we are really working hard with a a lot of our youth leaders to make sure that they understand the importance of the census. And I think what's most important about that is that they're dealing with, again, generations of mistrust of the federal government. In the past, the census has been used in in combination with a lot of other policies like child welfare where mothers were seeing children removed from their homes. And so, you know, when the government comes knocking, just like a lot of other disenfranchised communities in this country wanting to count you, it's a pretty high hurdle to get past when it comes to making sure people fill those forms out. And I think young people really have a role to play. So we're working with a pretty big coalition of partners uh, to really help get as many Native youth organizers out there as we can. Uh, We actually just received um, some funding through some of our partners at the Urban Indian Family Coalition. We're going to have youth organizers all over the country uh, being trained in census organizing, working with the paid census organizers with the federal government, and really finding ways to go and educate their elders, their classmates, and anyone else to make sure their family are filling out that that census card the last thing I'll say is that you know so many of our communities are rural as well so we have some very unique challenges when it comes to actually completing the census Alaska is actually the very first area in the country where the census takes place, because they are literally having to fly around in bush plains and off-road Alaska, you know, and, and make sure that they're going door to door to get those responses from those villages, uh, among other things, language barriers, you name it. So really important issue, and that's why we made it such an important focus of our report, and we're excited to hit the ground with our youth organizers this year to really try to get as many people out as we can.
0: Twenty years ago, a protest against the World Trade Organization offered a warning that globalization would one day face a reckoning. On the 20th anniversary of the famous Battle of Seattle, the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program is launching a new podcast called Business 2020. It's all about finding foresight through hindsight. And on the first episode, host Michelle Harvin reflects on these historical protests in connection to present day trade wars. Don't miss Business 2020, now available on all major podcast providers. the importance of telling stories from a position of strength and resilience.
1: I'm so glad you asked about that. I, I would say that's probably one of the most central parts of our work and mission here at, at the Center for Native American Youth. Storytelling is, is everything. It's, it's who we are. Um, it's how we share knowledge. It's how we share experience. Um, and when we are doing leadership development trainings for our young Native people, the first thing we always do is to make sure that they understand that their story matters and that their story is part of uh, generations of, of knowledge bearing uh, that is what keeps their culture alive and so when you're able to start with the strength of knowing that your story matters it it enables you to be a very confident advocate for your communities but what ends up happening in the media and we're by far not the only community that deals with this, Um, there's a lot of people telling other people's stories and really telling those in a wrong way. I think that Native youth are really on the leading edge of changing that deficit narrative because we have for too long seen so many front-page stories in major newspapers. They're on Pine Ridge. There's some photo of a bunch of sad children in a shot-out car And all they do for, you know, an entire feature piece is talk about, you know, negative outcomes, alcoholism, suicide epidemics. We know all these things are in our communities. But when you ask young Native people what they see in their communities, it's a completely different view. And they never really cover the the change makers, the ones who are really out there pushing solutions. So what we really try to do in partnership with our youth leaders is not only connect them with as many media outlets as possible and really train them in that, leading with their strengths messaging. But we also work very proactively with media. So, you know, one of my favorite opportunities we had was we had a group of uh, Generation Indigenous Movement Builder Fellows. So this was a group of um, older youth uh, who are working on all sorts of amazing issues from women's rights to journalism to the environment. And we worked with them for about a year uh, to really build a sort of a higher level of their connection to philanthropy and program development, and a number of other things. But what we actually got to go up to Condé Nast's um, headquarters up in New York and sit down with a bunch of the senior editors at Teen Vogue. Uh, we had been working with Teen Vogue for a while, and we were really impressed with their coverage of a whole bunch of different issues and they were always really well focused on the strengths that native communities bring to bear and so we ended up in this hour-long dialogue with their fashion editor their political editor and just these young people telling their stories and Um, we really realize the power of being able to sort of educate the media, even the ones who are doing a good job like that. But I think we need to do more of that. I think that we need to help the media understand why the way they do things actually has harmful effects, but also to really lift up and support good media. You know, there's a lot of good stuff out there. And I think that the more that we can really um, honor good storytelling that is full of the voices of Native people... I think the the more we can really help native youth change that that entire way that uh, that reporting has been for too often or for too long.
0: Language revitalization is the attempt to reverse the decline of language. There's been a growing movement of language revitalization across the country, which you mention in the state of native youth. Alyssa Sierra Concha, a Lakota language immersion kindergarten teacher, said, I want the students I teach to look at me and see a young Lakota person fluent in our language and proud to speak it. Where is language revitalization taking place so far, and what kinds of policies are being created to preserve indigenous languages?
1: Yeah, it's taking place everywhere. Um, like the food system issue, this is a really big one for Native youth. I think that the young people in this generation are growing up seeing the very last elders in their communities who are speaking their language you know I, I mentioned my great-grandfather went to a boarding school up in Canada her family's from a reserve up there and you know he was removed from his family and, and the, the policies at all of these schools were to discipline native youth for any kind of cultural expressions particularly their language they were there to learn how to speak English and assimilate so these are stories that were passed down in some cases and in, in many other cases these were these were some of these young people's parents. And so they realized the, the deep wounds that exist in communities around things like language and the destruction, the purposeful destruction of language. And so they realized that this is really something they need to prioritize because language is one of those things, when it's lost, it's lost. And so many things are tied to language. I think what's tough about a lot of... People who grew up in a Western experience is that, you know, they see these these components of culture as very compartmentalized. And for Native people, this is all part of our worldview. It's part of our existence. You can't take the environment, language, or food systems apart. You know, they're not separate. They're all part of a way of living. They're part of a a way of of knowing, and they're a part of our spirituality. So when Native youth are really helping just do everything from, you know, I'm amazed at some of the stories I hear, apps are a big one. There's a lot of Native youth who are, you know, doing just whatever they can to go interview elders about the language and just to at least create vocabularies, working with local universities and developers on creating language apps. Um, And then you've got some that are that are growing up learning the language and actually the first thing they want to do after college is to start a language immersion school. So there's some really big movements like that all over the country. One of our past champions for change, Vanessa Good Thunder, is actually leading that uh, work in her community of the Lower Sioux Tribe in Minnesota. And Uh, it's really having some tremendous impacts, and so I'm, I'm really excited to see where it's going because I think once we lead with rebuilding our language, so much else is going to follow.
0: Native communities are still fighting for their right to access and use lands that are sacred. How do we get the justice system and the public to acknowledge the unique nuances of Indigenous traditions?
1: Well, I think, first of all, they're not that unique. I think what's so frustrating, and this is why, when I was speaking about the issues around narrative change, why is this allowed to happen? And I think for a lot of people who aren't Native, who may not understand these issues, I simply ask, what would it be like to do that at a cathedral, at a mosque, at any number of other religious institutions and sacred sites across the world? There would be outcries. Um, there's, There's governments intervene. When it comes to our hundreds of, of traditional cultures here in the in the U.S., it, it's, it's treated very differently. So I think we have to start there, and that's the problem. Um, I think the only way that we're going to get to a place where uh, the public is properly respecting and creating the kinds of laws and policies that Native people have to have in place to protect those sites is to help them understand the sacred nature of these sites, why they matter to our lifeways and our spiritual systems, and then secondly, we need really strong legal enforcement. The most important agencies that have to do with this are usually under Department of Interior. Um, For those who don't understand, most tribal lands are held in trust by the U.S. government for um, Native people and for the different tribal nations across the country a very sacred part of that treaty obligation and trust is to protect sacred sites. And so that needs to be enforced through the Bureau of Land Management, Department of Interior, Forestry, the, um, the whole you know gamut of, of agencies that are in charge of our, our public lands. So there are legal protections that are in place, but we have seen a pretty aggressive number of stakeholders out there who are trying to run roughshod over the rights of, of Native people to their sacred sites for things like recreation, hunting, cattle grazing. You know, there's a lot of interest at, at play here. Uh, but what gives me hope is that uh, what a lot of people don't understand when they saw things like the uprising at Standing Rock is that was a prayer camp that was, a, that was not just... Uh, some environmental movement that was a movement about the sacred protection of land and water and a number of sacred sites in that area and that's happening everywhere where whether it's oak flat or you know any number of of site um, issues bears ears Um, so there's a lot of movement happening out there and I think the more that we see those grassroots movements the most important thing is that the public understands this because eventually I think the public will start to back the necessary policies and protections that we we really need in place to to really change this this really negative tide against some of these sacred sites.
0: What can the public do to A, educate themselves, and B, support Native communities?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and we get it a lot. I think it's one of our most important um, purposes here at the Aspen Institute is to really be that resource. I think one of the most important things is, first of all, I always tell people, you know, if you're an advocate, if you're an educator, whatever you're doing to, you know, better society, um, ask if Native people are at that table. So often we're just not thought of. And it's, it's really the easiest thing to do, but it's also one of the most impactful things to do, is how can we build voice in whatever we're doing for Native people? So if you're, like I said, in the environmental movement, Um, You know, whatever issue you care about, really always challenge yourself and everyone around you about where is the voice of Native people and how do we get them here. Um, So that's a really important piece of it is to really push back on that invisibility. The other thing I think is there's a lot of issues that matter to Native people that become politicized on a number of levels um, but matter deeply. I'll give you one clear example, the mascot issue. Uh, Native youth care a lot about this because there are still thousands of schools across the country with racist mascots and stereotypes. The psychological research has shown that this not only harms the mental health and and feelings of safety for Native youth in their own schools, but it severely undermines the understanding of non-Native people about Native people because it contributes to this negative narrative. And when you start there, especially when you're talking about kids and you don't have very good history in our textbooks, in some cases you have really bad history that isn't even accurate, you're starting from a point that's going to last a lifetime for non-native people. So one of the things we hear from our youth leaders across the country is we've got to focus on the education system, we've got to focus on some of these popular representations, and non-native people have a lot they can do with that. I mean, you know, we're here in Washington, D.C., we actually have a youth leader flying out from Chicago, Anthony Temes, who is a pretty big activist on this mascot issue. He's going to be working with a group of allies here um, to go meet with the lawyers at the Washington football team to talk about um, why that name needs to change. And so too often, I think you see these things out there that uh, that undermine the the importance of these issues for Native people. And this mascot issue is only one of them. And I think a lot of times it's a lot of non-Native people talking to non-Native people about what they think Native people think. So that's a lot of work that I think non-Native people can do to just, like, question themselves and take a step back and say, what do Native people actually think about any of these issues? And, again, that brings me back to why we just have to invite people to the table.
0: Is there anything I missed that you'd like to mention?
1: Um, you know, the the one thing I think we didn't cover that I still find is is a real challenge, and one of the reasons I love... The fact that we're a national organization with a pretty big reach is just the diversity of our cultures. Uh, You know, when people say Native American Heritage Month, you know, these are collective terms. These are not, we are not one people, we are not one culture. And I find that that is still really challenging, I think, for a lot of people who don't understand Native peoples um, to kind of wrap their head around. And so, you know, one of the things I always, again, when you were asking, you know, what can non-Native people do, you know, there's a lot that you can do to just really research and understand the Native peoples around you. Uh, There's some great resources at, like, the National Museum of the American Indian and a range of other partners, Um, but we are hundreds and hundreds of distinct languages, cultures land bases and that's really the beauty of what indigenous peoples in this country bring uh, to this nation And so I think the more that we can really honor uh, Native people for who they really are and again not uh, try to sort of apply these general um, associations, names stereotypes, uh, the the more that I think, non-Native people really understand uh, how important their contribution is to our civic life so just want to stress that that diversity and um, you know you could just explore around our website and read the stories of all these different Native youth and just see how different their experience is but how powerful it is together.
0: Well, Eric thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Sure it was great to be here thank you.
0: If you'd like to learn more about the Center for Native American Youth, go to www.cnay.org and follow at center number four native on Twitter and Instagram. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Eric Topol about the future of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Thank you to my colleagues who made this episode possible: Hisham Abdulhamid, Hamid, Tashia Arnold of the Quinault Indian Nation, Ben Berliner, Shereen Matthews, Aaron Myers, Eric Stegman of the Carry the Kettle Nation, Eric Van Boxtel, and former Senator Byron Dorgan. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our work. If you like this episode, give us a review on the Apple podcast app. Thanks for listening.